Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of uh, our podcast, uh, Hit Pause with SAPDC. My name is Dr. Rick Gilson, and I'm joined today by with my dear friend, uh, Kent Hollingsworth. Uh, Kent and I enjoy the odd round of golf, and someday he's going to get me out on the uh, for a little bit of fly fishing, I, I hope. Fantastic! Yes, <laughs> we're recording this both uh, uh, as a video to use some of the clips on YouTube, and uh, the audio as you're listening on our uh, podcast. Uh, let me just, uh, by way of introduction, uh, first say that uh, Kent is a certified solution-focused therapist, a behavior consultant and clinical consultant to a number of school divisions, working primarily here in Southern Alberta, uh, out of Lethbridge, uh, is supporting neurodevelopmental disabilities. That's a multi-syllable word that Kent can give us a, a little bit more of a background on. And for me, um, specifically, uh, you know, we, uh, we have Kent presenting on May 4th, 2022, uh, with the topic stress, distress, and trauma, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And what we want to talk about today a little bit is we, we recognize that there is a lot of anxiety uh, in lives, some of our friends, some of our family, some of our students, <laughs> ourselves. And uh, Ken's going to spend some time with us today looking at some of the science behind that, and uh, some of the connections. So Kent, maybe just a little bit right off the get-go, what is it about stress, toxic stress, and the connection to the central nervous system that has led you to understand what you understand and share what you want to share? Well, thanks for having me today, Rick. It's a, it's a real joy to present on a topic that I'm so passionate about. Um, I think the... the uh, the real, the real kernel of this or the real passion about this is that I believe in my work for a couple of decades now with the white hair to show it is that well-intentioned, caring caregivers and adults uh, in homes and in agencies and in schools um, often, I would say, uh, interact with students that they hope to support for growth when they're experiencing challenges like you mentioned. Um, they often interact with them in ways that are ultimately counterproductive. And they're counterproductive, um, I believe, because people maybe have not had a chance to understand the science of the central nervous system um, like we know now. And so I think the opportunity and passion to inform people in a digestible way that they can understand how the science of our central nervous system and our brain impacts ourselves and impacts those students or, or our children or our, um, some of our own family members um, in really significant ways uh, to provide, to provide growth, to provide the kind of calming you were talking about, but the opportunity for what I believe everyone wants. Um, and that is when challenges come and what I describe as pressure, and that's what anybody determines pressure to be, but when pressure comes and challenges come, that people will ultimately have more adaptive ability, more abilities in their growth to be able to manage those challenges in ways that are um, uh, more, more successful from a social point of view, more successful from a, you know, our heart's point of view, um, that they will overcome challenges um, in a way that um, helps them stay connected uh, uh, to others uh, and this wonderful world versus um, what sometimes and often happens for folks who experience these challenges is that it ends up disconnecting them uh, from, from others because of sometimes the behaviors that we see or the challenges that are experienced. 
It's very interesting. You said in a digestible piece and my, my mind immediately turned to, you know, when I'm anxious or I have a, a grandson that, that gets very anxious. And when he gets anxious, he manifests that with an upset stomach. And, uh, you know, so that then, you know, I don't feel good. I, I don't want to go to school. My stomach hurts. And I think what we're going to talk about today, you know, that could be very frustrating for a parent, yeah. especially if you don't understand the science and you're like, oh, come on, that's in your head. And, and you don't understand that there's a direct connection from what's in your head through this right to my right to my stomach, actually. And he's yes. not. He's not uh, lying or making it up, but there's ways to help that. Is that heading in the right direction? Uh, certainly, and you're right on the money. And I think e even that 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 thought about this is physiologically, and and for our bodies, what you've said is a hundred percent accurate, and so it could help a parent, or help a teacher, um, or a caregiver, or a coach. It can help them all. Emit, initially from the very get-go if they believe the child we're in a whole different place to start with helping a child than if the beginning thought is they're manipulating us they are trying to avoid this they're get, trying to get out of this they're they're not telling us the truth we we start at a whole different place if we believe what they're saying to us absolutely right rick benefit of the doubt and work our way through it that's that's what you're suggesting right there absolutely so so what is this polyvagal theory maybe i could throw a little graphic up and you could i think that would be fantastic um so i think you might have a slide there for everybody um i think it's really helpful if you squint and look close to your um, computer for folks who are able to see this a little bit more closely um the vagus nerve uh, interestingly enough or importantly um, is the largest nerve in our body and it's connected to every major organ in our body and so um, this theory and this understanding really about um, the vagus nerve and what it does has been around for several decades um, but really it's come to light maybe in the last five or six years really um, gain momentum in terms of understanding the implications of what this nerves, nerves job is, the function of this nerve. And really to, to think about it in a, in a very concrete way, the, the nerves job is to help keep us safe. Um, it's to help us thrive. And what's really powerful, I think, is that perhaps up until the, this polyvagal theory has become more well-known by Dr. Stephen Porges um, in, in his work, is that people have often thought, I think like you referenced it uh, initially at the beginning of our, of our discussion here the, this morning, that uh, it, all of this goes on in, in from the neck up. Um, in terms of our thoughts and our ideas. And I think that's the, the typical um, belief uh, in our world. And really what the, what the polyvagal theory teaches us, poly meaning wandering or many, there's many parts of this nerve that go into, uh, that go into our, um, our major organs. So it's a wandering and major nerve. And really what um, the learning that's exciting is that this isn't just about thinking things from the neck up. This is how much our body through our vagus nerve informs, literally informs the brain versus the other way around. Almost like a bottom up instead of a top down uh, about what is safe and what is dangerous or threatening. Is that I mean, like when, when I'm feeling anxious and uh, there's that rumbling in my stomach or even you start to shiver, but you're not cold. It, are those things that are connected to, to this vagus nerve? 
uh, uh, precisely. You're, you're right on the money there with that. And, and if we think about this little phrase, I think we could come back to a few times uh, today. Um, and, and the phrase is that story follows state. Story follows state. So depending on your experience, and this is Rick, if it's Rick Gilson's experience, if it's Kent Hollingsworth's experience, if it's a, um, a child that is affected by autism in grade one, and it's his or her experience, if it's somebody um, who's coming back from a tour of duty somewhere, um, it's their experience. So, you know, this, this idea around what we, what our body feels, might use another word here, interoception. So interoception, if our central nervous system is working, working well, interoception is our story, our understanding of feeling hungry, feeling the butterflies, feeling sick. Um, interoception is sort of that another extra sense that we've got other than taste and smell and hearing, but that interoception that you had just described, uh, you know, maybe with the feelings inside, we then, to the extent that we have the cognitive ability to do so, Rick, we then at some point, a little bit of a delay, or maybe a fair bit of a delay, but then we make a story. We, we try to understand what these feelings in our body mean what they're telling us. And ultimately, um, going maybe way to the end of this, um, I think that some of the, the hope and some of the passion about this is the ability and the possibility of changing some people's story um, from what they feel. In a nutshell, if they feel that what they're experiencing is dangerous, or it is to be on guard, or to, they feel threatened. It is possible over time to help people restore that this might be safe. This might be an opportunity to, to problem solve in a successful collaborative way versus perhaps what their central nervous system has informed them to do in the past, which is maybe try to solve problems in ways that are challenging for the rest of, of society, um, because that might be in what people would think of as aggressive or, or destructive um, um, ways, ways themselves. You use the word introception. Uh, I just, for my sake and maybe for our, some of our listeners as well, is what's the difference between introception and perception? Um, well, so introception is really the the focus of introception is what's going on in your body. Okay. Okay. So perception would be you know we perceive other things in the world, um, and we have a perception about that, a cognitive perception so really introception is related to to that experience of our of what what we understand about what's going on inside of our body so the the connections could exist and if, if I, I perceive this to be a dangerous situation for me and when i become aware of that can i then reflect on what that impact is to my heart rate my breathing how my stomach feels all of those sorts of things well, you tell me if I'm getting a little bit too complicated or in the weeds, but let's, let's start. <laughs> we won't really go too deep in the weeds, but it, yeah. Well, um, that's maybe where the trout are actually. And so uh, okay. that's, that's for another day. <laughs> um, the polyvagal theory would teach us that the perception that you described from our central nervous system's point of view doesn't happen until much later. When I said that okay. story follows state. Right. Um, so yes, there is a perception, but what's, what I think is valuable to toss around in our, in our own brain, uh, a while during this, during this podcast, but also as folks uh, continue to digest this is that the central nervous system's job 
is sort of automatically without our awareness. So without our perception, Mm -hmm. automatically scanning continuously our environment to determine if that environment is safe, if I ought to be on guard, or if it's really, really threatening. And that is a term that Dr. Porges invented, and the term is called neuroception. And he wanted to distinguish it, which I agree, to distinguish it between perception and neuroception. So neuro is this um, this central nervous system scanning and and the central nervous system determining far quicker than our cognitive ability could that something is dangerous. I'll give you a, maybe one perfect example. Um, you may know, cause I've been with you a little bit. I know you're a little faster fleet of foot than I am, but I'm a bit <laughs> of a runner. Yep. Um, but my, my feet are just, they, they just go high enough. So I don't trip over the, the cement and it's pretty, it's pretty slow. And uh, in an area, I think last year, the year before I was trotting along in a very, very slow pace. And I was on the path and it was a summer day and it was a snake that I was maybe two feet away from. And I have my headphones on and I'm, I'm in my zone, which is a very slow zone, but Rick, did I jump like the, the amount of how fast that I moved and what happened to my body before I could conceptually have this perception that something was dangerous, mm-hmm. it had already happened and I was already past. Like, I mean, I'm thinking about it now and I can feel it in my body. Um, <laughs> the snake wasn't in the end, the snake wasn't one that I could be, that I should have or needed to be worried about. Right. But the central nervous system's job is not to go, gee, gee, Kent, is that maybe a rattlesnake? What are the markings that you should be looking at to see if it's a rattlesnake? <laughs> you know, like you're tough and you're strong and maybe you could go around. None of those things, if it was really a dangerous moment, I would have been bitten by then. So nothing was about my perception. It's the neuroception of my body that scanned the environment. And it essentially took hold of me. And its job was to make sure to whatever extent possible, that my central nervous system told my body to act in a way that made sure that I was, that I could be as safe as possible because that's the central nervous system's job. And then after that, and I sort of caught my breath and I'm glad nobody was around because I probably looked a little silly, but after that moment, two or three seconds passed, then there was the story. Right. Does that make sense about the perception, your reception and the story? That does. That does. Does that give us a, a, a decent example of what you refer to as the polyvagal ladder? Sure. Yes. I think, you know, we could highlight that as a way to, to, we- to, to look at this for sure. Thanks for bringing up that, that particular slide. Um, so I, I love the way that that slide um, presents a visual understanding for people to to anchor themselves really in what this, uh, what this approach is about. Um, and so people are really used to, or lots of people are used to in our world, understanding the sympathetic. So I'm going to start right in the middle there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that it's right in the middle is because it's right beside our heart. And so when people, parents, um, caregivers, teachers, um, staff in a school, for instance, um, we're, we're used to, uh, to knowing what that can look like. If it goes pretty high up on that sympathetic scale, things can get pretty pretty hairy um, because that's around mobilization, that's around activity, that's around needing to move. And so, yeah, what you described, um, what, the reason that I think you brought this up is that what I described about how quick I had to react and that yep. I had to move, um, that was really that, that adrenaline, um, that rush of energy, that my body, my central nervous system, this nerve in particular, um, had determined I needed, I needed to do that to be safe. And so that would be uh, what 
many people are familiar with. If we go below that, just be, um, just before yeah, we sure, just sure, before sure. we do there, that that's exactly what drew my attention to it is that that sympathetic. Many of us are are somewhat familiar with that in a different way. That immediate twitch response, that fight or flight response, is connected to this sympathetic middle section of of this um, autonomic uh, ladder and you know i all of us can experience that uh, you know in some long grass uh, off the seventh uh, fairway there uh, at mcgrath uh, just a garter snake but it didn't matter and my feet were there and the snake went over my shoe and uh, i I used to have a pretty good vertical and I had a really good vertical right then. I bet you did. And, I bet you did. And that's the sympathetic. And then you move up and down depending on frequency of those experiences, I think is where we're headed here. Is that right? You betcha. And so um, if we go, if we go down, let's go down yeah. for a moment to that to dorsal the, vagal. Okay. Like, do you want me to just yeah. discuss that just a little bit? And so yeah. um, where you see the, where you see the, uh, the images there um, of people, the dorsal vagal. Um, and, you know, if people want to learn more about this, they can, they can uh, learn more about it at the, the workshop or more in depth, but I'll suffice it to say here that the dorsal vagal is this lower part. When I talked at the beginning or you showed the slide at the beginning about all the major organs being connected by the vagus nerve. Yep. Um, this one is really in the, you know, connects to the, to the um, diaphragm below. And so um, the idea around the dorsal vagal experience would be um, if we find ourselves or if a child finds themselves or, or another person finds themselves in a situation that their central nervous system believes is truly hopeless, they can't mobilize to be safe. Um, that's where the experience of dorsal vagal is most prominent. Um, go ahead. You're is, there, is there a sense of hopelessness that comes into play then? Is that uh, part of that? And, and it's very definitely down in your guts. Right? Yes. Yes. So the hopelessness um, is definitely a part of it. There's another part that I would want to bring in, and that is, um, uh, you know, this part of retreating. And so I know that different people can have different ideas. Retreating can be lovely and wonderful and has that connotation. <laughs> um, in this case, let's say a person has had a, uh, a serious surgery or is recovering from chemo treatments um, that they might want to, they might want to or need to get in that bed, cover themselves like a cocoon and want want and need that body to be in that very much of a resting protective um sort of a, an experience so it's not so much in that case the hopeless part but right. it would be very similar shades of around the the need for protection mm -hmm. and not being able to do to do much to be able to manage that other than try to build this cocoon does that make sense yeah, so it, it does. It feels like, and this is maybe where uh, from teachers and parents, hey, first work at feeling safe. You've, you've gone through some pretty significant trauma and you don't want to stay in a dorsal vagal uh, setting, but there are appropriate times to be there. Uh, as you say, when you've come through a, a, a bad accident or a major surgery or cancer treatments or a significant trauma as you experienced it. Yes. Because, right. So, that, so that story is there. And then those of us not in that, the support people in, in a person's life in these situations, we want to and can work at taking somebody up from that dorsal through the parasympathetic towards a place where they feel safe and social and able to function. Is that how it goes then, Kent? Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. We would, we would go through these levels. And so sympathetic doesn't always mean that, you know, people are throwing chairs or people are running away or they're hitting somebody. It's not always the extreme part of, of sympathetic 
sympathetic, but it really means that there's, you know, some version of what people describe as that, you know, there's some juice in, involved, you know, there's some, there's some mobilization uh, that is, is involved. But when we get to that top, top, top part that was on the slide there around that um, ventral vagal, uh, there you go, um, it's right across from the prefrontal cortex. And, uh, and, and that's the part of the brain that we all want to access, all educators, all parents. Um, we want to access the front of that brain, that uniquely uh, human uh, aspect of, of our biology, because it's in that front part of the brain that all the very best um, of being a, being a human being um, is developed in terms of um, forethought, um, thinking and reflecting, um, being able to develop ideas uh, and being new ideas, curiosity for learning, for growth, um, all of those things that are, are, are things that teachers, parents get excited about for our kids is all, uh, is all in that ventral vagal part where people are interested in connecting, able to connect, um, and, and learn in a sense collaboratively as, as well as independently. But in this case, the emphasis is on collaboration and connectedness with, with others in this world. So the ventral vagal and the prefrontal cortex have connections. And we know that uh, younger students, teenagers, and even some of us, uh, your beautiful gray, my wonderful sheen. Uh, for those not watching the video, I'm, I don't have a lot of hair I need to fuss with. <laughs> but uh, the, the piece here being uh, the prefrontal cortex is, is in a state of development for a, a, all through the school years, the K to 12 years and beyond. And, and uh, understanding that creating a safe environment and helping people feel connected to the world and connected to their choices and empowering is always to move up uh, the ladder. Right, right. Um, and maybe this would be a good time to bring up that other, that yeah. other slide, if you possibly could, just to maybe help people understand. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for bringing that up. So um, reason, one of the other reasons uh, that I think polyvagal theory is so important for, for schools, uh, for parents, um, and, and other folks, agencies uh, in particular, for folks who have uh, uh, challenges or neurodevelopmental, meaning um, um, developmental disabilities that are related to uh, the brain functioning differently. I'm thinking about things like um, autism and um, a pervasive developmental disorder, uh, kind of a, a catch-all for children who are um, in, um, in uh, younger ages when we haven't got a specific diagnosis yet. Um, we think about um, Downs, we think about Fragile X. Um, uh, folks who, as you were talking about at the very beginning, um, who have significant challenges um, uh, with, say, mood disorders, um, anxiety. Uh, Students who have been subjected to various pieces of uh, trauma that would be itemized in like the ACEs study, adverse childhood experiences. Uh, right? uh, 100%. 100%. Um, so that toxic stress, mm -hmm. um, we can, people can debate on what's stressful or not, but ultimately what Polyvega would say is it's, it's stressful. The, the central nervous system of that individual person determines if it's stressful. Um, and that's really the key. But the highlight about this that I think is so important is that you had you had talked about this earlier, the fight and flight, that middle zone, that that sort of yellowish um, gold zone, I, I think is is the predominant area that is seen to get the most attention and the most care and thought um, and the most supports. Um, and there's good reason for that. I'm not saying that polyvagal changes that per se. I think the reason that it's it's so it's seen by agencies and other places as so needing support and and uh, and care and attention is because um, extreme fight or flight can present as dangerous. 
Um, these can be very aggressive behaviors. Um, we could be ducking iPads and, um, and moving <laughs> our, you know, moving our arms so that they're not bitten or scratched and trying to catch up to people um, with faster feet than me because uh, they've fleed, um, say, the school or, or they've left somewhere. So that really is uh, uh, deserving of attention, but it's the top part that I wanted to highlight here, the part in red right. um, that I think historically has gone really unnoticed almost. Yeah. And because the, the dorsal vagal experience for some of the students or people we're talking about, this could be family members, uh, too, that um, we could be thinking about as we're listening to this, that um, it is often a quiet experience. It is an invisible experience. Um, it could be some version of, of um, curled up in the fetal position. Um, and because those students or those situations, uh, people aren't worried about uh, getting computers thrown at them, or running out into the street, that the quiet, silent sufferers who from a polyvagal point of view are the most helpless. They feel the most defeated. Um, the severity of their experience is, is, is higher, higher in severity than fight and flight because the central nervous system believes that by acting, we can make it better. Right. And the dorsovagal experience for the kinds of folks that I'm talking about here experiencing um, would be that I, I can't act in a way that would make it better. It, it can be pretty defeating. Yeah, I mean, for our uh, those of you who are just listening on the podcast, we'll have uh, in the notes uh, the link to this polyvagal chart. It just to describe it quickly, in the lower level, we have the ventral vagal, which uh, has underneath it safety and social engagement. And it's the green area. And it's where we kind of would all prefer to be. And uh, Kent, I know you, those who know better do better. Um, you know, we all, we all prefer to pass. We all prefer to, to be happy. We all prefer to feel loved and to love and uh, so that's kind of where we all want to be unfortunately we can't always be there right so the next layer on the chart is the fight flight the yellow zone uh, lots of visible things like lots of actionable challenges there right like, as you say we we run or we're, we're going to strike back yeah. and uh, that that freeze area the dorsal vagal the red section up above we see things like depression disassociation numbness helplessness i'm intrigued by words like shame and hopelessness you know the i can't and you know as, as someone who comes at life with a, a lifelong learning or eternal learning approach uh, i can what is it there's a I can do anything. You know, there's right. that, there's a song that has that, you know, that's a nice place to live, but when it's, I can't, that could be frustrating, you know, uh, to me, if I'm working with someone there, I can't, I can't, I can't. Yes, you can. I know you can. Well, I know they can. I can't let that frustrate me. Yeah. I've got to help them see how they can. And this is the practical piece of it for an education assistant, a teacher, a parent, how do we uh, hear you're being invited maybe for the first time, even just to think, Hey, that quiet kid is actually the kid that's in more could be in more danger, quiet, non-functioning as yeah. opposed to quiet functioning. Yeah. Could that quiet, non-functioning disassociated frequently I can't, there should be some uh, warning bells. It feels like, as you described this, there should be some warning goes off in your head as someone not in that environment with them. Yeah, and you can see here, I hope I'm on the same page as you, but you correct me if I'm not. But <laughs> think about if a child is sort of in the state that you're describing um, and they seem numb and they seem disassociated, they seem that they're really not present, um, uh, and for some degree of, of pretty significant challenges, if a caregiver or a teacher um, or a support person 
um, is, is believing that they're just being lazy, let's say, mm -hmm. for example, uh, that they're just uh, sort of um, wanting to um, and willfully, you know, uh, not taking part in things. Um, I could see that it's very possible that person, not knowing what we're discussing today, could come at that child with a central nervous system. This is the adult I'm talking about. That yep. could come to that child um, or person with a with a reasonably elevated um, sympathetic state. Um, maybe a little frustrated that they're not doing something. Um, activated to try to get them to activated to try to get them going, um, motivating them to try to get going. And the mismatch for someone who might be truly in a dorsal vagal experience to experience someone who's coming at them from a sympathetic or, or reasonably aroused, even if they think they're, they're doing the right thing, the mismatch, um, you know, not to put you in a spot, but what do you think might happen to that child in experiencing a person coming at them from that, from that level of, of energy. Well, isn't that, isn't that a fascinating thought? I, I'm thinking of it for the first time. It, it's a little bit like, what is it that you can add to a boiling pot that will cause it to hyperboil as opposed to what is it you can add to a boiling pot that'll calm the boiling pot, even without turning down the heat, it'll, it'll slow it down. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know if I ever want to be described as frozen peas, but if I take some frozen peas and put them in a boiling pot, that'll settle it down a lot more than if I take a boiling pot and add more boiling Yes. Uh, yes. or turn up that heat. And so my frustration puts me in the yellow zone and I'm dealing with somebody that's at the higher end of the yellow or even into the red it, it is now very much in that dorsal vagals set already at the verge of shutdown okay, I'm just going to help them shut down more. Right. That's what you're describing. And so, again, as a, as a parent, a grandparent, a friend, uh, an education assistant, a teacher, I need to find myself in that situation. It's not about me. So I don't need to be frustrated. I need to be calm. I need to be working. I need to be in the green zone. Is that... Well, the part that's really at? exciting that you just said is I'm gonna I'm gonna contradict you, but in a caring, respectful way. Okay. And that when you said it's not about me, then actually what you went on to describe was everything about you. And that's accurate. That it actually is about you in a primary way. Yeah. In, in being in, in the right place. Be understanding where you're at. And yeah. it's okay to notice you your storying like the adult right that's one of the exciting components of this is that the impact of what i'll call the helper whoever mm -hmm. the helper is mm -hmm. but the impact of the helper is really um um really accentuated in terms of understanding this approach so yes in wanting to think about how we most effectively support the other person we do start in some ways with ourselves and figuring out where are we and where do we need to be to more appropriately um, uh, relate in a truly helpful way uh, for the person that we're wanting to support. And then, of course, the second part where it's not about me, but about the other person is um, where are we gauging uh, our best guesstimate? Where are we gauging as to where, where they're at on this autonomical tree uh, between the three the three branches of the central nervous system. Where are we guessing that they're at? Because we kind of want to match um, reasonably close to be effective. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Kent, you know, obviously, I mean, we have a three-hour session scheduled in, in May to take a deeper dive in this. But the intent of this visit is to give people a bit of a taste and I, th I think that looking at these three slides and engaging in this conversation, I, and as I say, we'll put some links in the chat and, and some links in the YouTube versions that we put up uh, for this. We, we at, the, at the outset have to take some of our previously held 
understandings or perceptions and set them to the side. Again, remembering kids do best if they can. Yeah. And right. And, and the same for the adults we're dealing with. Like, you know, it's not like as adults, we're always super calm. (laughs) Right. People want to do well. They would choose to do well if they could. Yeah. There there's the saying right there. And, and so, uh, in situations of conversation or support, it is important that I focus on where I am, as you, as you pointed out, and where I am as I interact with the other individual is going to play a role into whether or not they're going to de-escalate or escalate. And interestingly, and perhaps revelationary to some that escalation can actually lead to less outright behavior but greater danger to the individual in the long haul um i'm intrigued to suggest that uh, someone significantly in that dorsal vagal area that freeze that red zone that's where you am i correct that's where you might find a a a student that's cutting for example yeah hundred percent. And and they're doing that because why, Ken? Well, we don't have an hour, so no, we don't have an hour down to 30 (laughs) seconds, but, um, but you know, what's interesting about, um, one of the things that's really interesting and insightful about, uh, uh, self-harm or NSSI non-suicidal self-injury. Right. So if we're talking about that, that specific, um, discussion there in terms of, of cutting. Um, a person is overwhelmed by uh, circumstances, feelings out of control. Um, and so then very, very, very close and often experiencing um, that dorsal vagal that actually for many people um, changes their perception of the pain because of disassociation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the exact principles that you're talking about, about the vagus nerve, really being able to help a person almost shift where they are so that they can experience something that um, maybe is hurtful, um, but in a, in a, for the person, an adaptive way to control some ac- aspects of their life, to feel in a way that is controllable, to self-soothe, managing for themselves. Um, and being able to rely on themselves when they feel like, um, essentially from a polyvagal point of view, that the people that they had hoped they could trust um, have been dangerous. Fantastic. Now, here's a challenge for you. Okay. (laughs) What are one or two... There's no quick fixes, so I, I yeah. want to paraphrase it with that. Or, or uh, before we before I throw this to you, okay. the the thing that we're looking to do is to support the deactivation, to to bring someone down from freeze, down from fight flight, down into the ventral vagal to a sense of safety. Is there one or two? There might not be, I know we'll get to them in our three-hour session, but is there one or two things that you would say, think about maybe this as an example, and then people can take from that uh, enough curiosity to know about some more. Um, So here's number one, uh, and I hope that this resonates with folks who might have a chance to hear this or see this. Um, I would say that the, the number one guiding principle of this is that a person's primary focus is to help a person come to calm. Now, the reason that, and that makes sense Mm -hmm. when I just say it like that, but what I would say in my experience of over a couple of decades of working with um, individuals who have challenging behaviors um, for a number of reasons um, and those who work with them, is that bringing them to calm, like I said at the very beginning, so this is coming back to the beginning, 
people, I think, unintentionally pour gas on the fire, mm-hmm. believing that they're going to produce a good thing because people would do well if they could. I believe that people's belief is that they would do well if they could. Often, often what is tried that I'm going to say the reverse of for being concrete. Often what is tried are some version of carrots and sticks, Mm. threats, uh, consequences, rewards, uh, rewards, some version of those uh, authority or forced by an adult to say, I'm the sheriff. You need to do this. You need to calm down. (laughs) <laughs> some version yes get, and get a hold of yourself yes okay but i can't yes and what i'm describing in terms of saying if our primary reason which we really go into in the three hours because we want to develop brains and get to the prefrontal cortex if the primary goal is to actually help a person become calm then the things that i just described most often bring the person to greater threat. They activate a threat response. Even motivational things like rewards activate an already sensitized stress response. But here's the kicker. Traditional behavior management approaches, traditional ways that most of us were brought up with. When I try and support people to bring calm to children, youth, and adults who need it, the traditional approach would view what I do as giving in, Mm. as being a marshmallow without a spine, and here's somebody who's manipulating me by their bad behaviors, and they're, they're the tail wagging the dog. Enabler. An enabler. And aren't they just going to learn to do this more? And what I'm saying is the number one um, most important piece. And it's also for some people, the, maybe the biggest paradigm shift that they will have in their life around understanding behaviors is that I want the same thing or polyvagal theory wants the same thing as all of those folks want. We want a person to be able to manage challenges well. But the key is, They have to be in a calm state and they have to be safe with me. And if I'm in the business, because I think that that's traditionally how it's been, if I'm in the business of consequences and rewards and power and threat and control, then we know that all of those things are the opposite of, say, a trauma-sensitive approach. They pour, like you said, the boiling, boiling kettle they would be there pouring gas in the fire for someone who's been traumatized. And what we're talking about in terms of coming alongside people in an appropriate stage to where they are and taking the time, which sometimes is very inconvenient because we feel like we don't have the time. Sometimes we don't, but I think many times we do. Um, If we start with the approach that we need this person, we need to support them to return to calm because that's the only way we are going to ultimately develop a new story. Mm. And we're ultimately going to be able to connect the prefrontal cortex to this experience of a challenge and to say, at some point along the way, we managed it better. We solved it better together. I can't make my relationship. I can't tell you that I'm safe. I can't say you're safe with me. Your central nervous system decides if it's if I'm a safe person, but your experiences through all of your life um, are viewed through the are my our, our relationship together are viewed through all of those experiences to determine is this safe? And for many of the people we're talking about, we've had literally hundreds, some thousands of experiences of being overwhelmed, of feeling threatened a feeling like they're in danger because they can't cope. We have a long way to go, but it's doable to help people have a different experience of solving problems, of managing pressure uh, in more 
in more successful ways because people would like to do well if they could. Fantastic, Kent. Thanks very much for your time today. Uh, Thank you. Really, really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope our listeners uh, have enough from this. I I believe you certainly can take enough from this to get uh, headed in the right direction. I feel like, uh, you know, as one who has said, calm down a few times in my life to others. Um, that should have been my inside voice way before it was my outside voice. I think that might be the, <laughs> that might be the first thing. If you think you need to say, calm down, close your lips and say, calm down to yourself. Yeah. And the second part is that when you've ever needed to calm down yourself for any of our listeners, I invite people when I work with them to think about what, what they would need from another person when they're in that state. And nobody puts up their hand and goes, I would like somebody to tell me to calm down. <laughs> like it, it hasn't come up in a, but it's the number one thing that we all do. Me as a dad and, and yeah. you know, we, all of our roles. It's the one we thing both, we do, but when you ask people, what is it that you would need? Nobody goes yeah. like exactly what I do. So Just I mean, it's, me. Just yeah. tell me to calm down. We've both been married for a few decades. Yeah. That's a good one to use with our wives, right? It's, uh, uh, calm yeah, down. It's, uh, that's worked really well. Absolutely <laughs> not. Yes, that's wonderful. Thank you, Rick. This has been uh, just a real joy and a blessing for me. So so thank you for our time together this, this morning. Thank you very much. And uh, folks, again, a reminder, uh, if you're listening to this in uh, before the session, our session is Wednesday, May 4th from 9 till 12 p.m. And you can access that at uh, sapdc.ca and uh, and take that in. Thank you so much, Kent. Appreciate it. And uh, appreciate all that you do in the South uh, to support the school jurisdictions and the community. And uh, take care. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for all that SAPDC does.